All right, hello everyone. Welcome to this week's NFL Week 12 podcast. We're here to talk about the biggest sporting event of the weekend. That is the Dallas Cowboys, America's team of Weldon and Robert Johnson traveling to Foxborough, Massachusetts to take on a team they haven't beaten in over 20 years, the New England Patriots, the Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. Okay, we're not going to, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit at the end, but really we've got a lot of other running related stuff to talk about. Yes, you tuned into the right podcast. We're going to, we have a terrific performance, one that I think isn't getting enough love. Letisenbet Gide of Ethiopia running a 15K world record in the Netherlands over the weekend. That's incredible. Jordan Assay has a new coach or coaching advisor, mentor, kind of unclear what the title is. Paula Radcliffe, we're going to talk about that. We'll talk about some lingering Mary Kane stuff and the fallout from that New York Times story from a couple weeks ago. We'll talk a little bit about NCAA cross country, though our plan is we're going to have a live podcast, hopefully in Terre Haute on Saturday. Myself and Robert Johnson will be on site talking about that. So more detailed preview later in the week, but we'll touch on that. But let's get started running related stuff here. Latissan Betgide, that's the big story, I think. Is that where you guys want to start? Rojo Weldon, welcome to the show. Robert here. How do I make a siren sound? Air raid, air raid, air raid. I haven't been this excited about an accomplishment in the sport in maybe 10 years. I stayed up till 3 a.m. As a result, I've had a morning from hell. My iPhone was thrown out of the car by my Lyft driver. More on that later. But I couldn't believe it. Over the weekend, as a father, you know, you got a young kid running around. I got an email uh, for my guest, Gaday's agency or somebody saying 15K world record. I, I, I'm like, 15K, who cares? I didn't pay attention to it. Last night, I was working on the week that was, and I started to analyze this performance. And I said, Holy shit, why isn't this? Let's run homepage needs to be black for at least a month. I don't care if it happened three days ago. This is a disgrace. It's not in 36 font. Why aren't people hyping this up? We have disgraced the sport as journalists. This is the greatest performance in women's track and field history. Just take a look at it. Wow. Wow. Robert, I mean, that's a, that's a bold claim, especially since we just saw a world record of 214.04 in the marathon, you know, a month ago. But I think if you're going to make that case... It's, it, you know, this tweet, Dan Lilo tweeted out the IAAF scoring tables. And to clarify the time she ran, this was at the Seven Hills Run in the Netherlands, also known in the native language as Zephyrhoven Lenloop, I believe. I don't know if I'm doing that right. 44-21. The old record was 45-37 by Jocelyn Jip Kozgai, which is en route at the Prague Half Marathon in 2017. But the time, 44-21, here are some of the equivalents according to the IAAF scoring tables for a woman. 10307 in the half marathon, 211.51 in the marathon. That's exactly. I guess you haven't read my week that was because I haven't quite finished it yet. But, but that's where I started with, with the scoring tables. And when I mean the best performance, I'm talking Flojo, all the joke up performances. I'm not sure about the throws, but in terms of running performances, talk about some of the other events. 10.46100. Full only ran 10.49. 151.53800. It's equivalent to a 346.1500, 403 mile, 831 steeple. But check out these 5,000 and 10,000s. I mean, you already said the 211 marathon, which is unreal. 1342.33 for 5,000 and 2844.31 for, for 10,000. Wait, wait. 1432? Don't you mean 1332? Excuse me. 1342. 
1342. Okay. Yeah, in 2844. And this is, folks, a very famous course in the Netherlands. The Seven Hills race is, is not some fly by nut race, so it's very unlikely that they ran off course or anything like that. It's just mind-blowing. It, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, we knew, and one of the points I'm making in this article is, how is this possible? And I think now, you know, assuming this record is ratified, it's easy to say, looking back, that she's arguably the greatest or one of the greatest women's distance talents in history. I mean, look at what she did as a junior. She quietly won two world junior cross-country titles. Do you know how hard it is to win two of those? Like, that's absurd because you have to do it first as a 17-year-old. She did the days after her 17th birthday in, in Giyang, China, and then a few days after her 19th birthday in Uganda. That that, that, that that was pretty impressive. And then this year she won World XC Bronze and then World World 10,000 Silver. Remember, in that 10,000 race, she closed her last 1,500 in 403. If it wasn't for Safan Hassan, we would have been saying this is one of the greatest 10,000s ever run. And now that this 15K world record shows that she is just – Unbelievable. I mean, honestly, Safan Hassan, next year, I don't think Hassan will do the 10,000, but if she does, I'm not picking her to win it. No way can she hang with this good day woman. Well, here's the other thing. So her last 10K was 29.12. That is the fastest that any woman has ever covered 10,000 meters on any surface. The world record on the track is 29.17. The world record on the roads is 29.43. Now, as John Mulkeen pointed out on Twitter, there is a pretty significant drop, especially over the last 10K, but from 5.5 kilometers to 50, sorry, pretty significant drop from 10K to the finish and to net downhill from 5K to the finish. But overall, it, it, it starts at about, four, I think, 40 meters elevation or 40 feet. I don't know what the units are here. It's basically net zero for the course of the race. Yeah, the the course is a loop, John, and, and and again, this is all going to be in the week that was. It's all in meters, but basically, it starts just below forty meters of sea level, goes all the way up to close to a hundred meters above sea level, uh, and then drops all the way back down. So the first five kilometers is is roughly forty six meters up the uphill, and that's about one hundred and fifty feet, one hundred fifty point nine feet. Now, according to John Kellogg's formula, where every ten feet in elevation gain, net elevation gains worth cost you eight one point eight seconds. Um, that would slow you down by just over 27 seconds, 27.2 to be exact. So her first 5K was 15.07. But if you subtract 27 seconds from that, you get basically she ran a 14.40 first 5K. Now, that, la- that last 10K, I-, I read it was 29.13, and then her final time was 44.20. It's been rounded down. Anyways, let's say it's 29.13. Um, you'd have to add 27 seconds to that be- because you're getting the net elevation down. And there's a lot of hills in between. I mean, there's seven hills, so I don't know how many are in between 5 and 15K. But let's just say, and I know that since it's up and down, you're, you're not going to have a net zero. This is harder than a flat course because there's a lot of hills in it. But I'm just saying, let's just give her 27 seconds, add 20, subtract 27 seconds from the first 5K and add it to the, to the last 10K. That would mean that her, her final you know, 10K was 29.40. So basically, she started out at 29.22 pace with the first 5K and then ran the last 10K at 29.40 pace if everything was flat when she was a little bit tired. And another crazy stat from this, John, final 3K. Now, this is way downhill. Still, 8.30. Mary Slander's U.S. record, which just stood forever, is 8.25. Just an insane run all around. Well, then, you haven't spoken at all. Do you have a take on this, or shall we just move on to the next subject? Thank you, guys. Thank you. I mean, I think the number one complaint this podcast gets is there's not enough of me on it. And I was never formally introduced. I just kind of kept sitting here. I'm like, I'm the one who came up with the idea for the weekly podcast. I feel like I'm the brains behind this organization, and... Wow, it was just sort of painful to hear you guys just go on like this. 
the run is incredible. I, I sort of, you know, 15K road record, I just don't give it much thought. And this run is, is nuts. It's pretty crazy. I think we deserve to sort of be called out for not giving enough credit. We, we will talk about moderation later, but people say, oh, let's run as racist. Let's run as sexist, blah, blah, blah. Have you seen this run getting a lot of talk anywhere? And so you could say that's a side of let's run. But I feel like we're the one of the few places where people celebrate great runs by African runners, such and such. It's crazy this one sort of went by us for this much time. But, I, you know, I couldn't tell you what the 10K world record for men is either on the roads. Some of these road stuff you sort of ignore. But once you look into this record and the run, I mean, it's one of the best female runs ever. But then are we going to have to go there? I can't believe you guys haven't mentioned it yet. Vaporflies, baby. You know that she was wearing the Vaporfly next percent. Right. And I really think this second shoe is way better than the first. And the record books are going to have to be completely rewritten. Maybe running downhill. Who knows? Even though the course, it's like, this isn't also road records. I'm like, oh, maybe there was a tailwind. Maybe there was this. This is a loop course, a hilly loop course. I mean, that's crazy. But maybe somehow with, if, even though it's hilly, like somehow the downhill, the sort of spring effect could really help you more. Who knows? It's just sort of crazy where women's running is right now. And G'day is only officially 21 years old. She's really just, I guess you can't say she just burst on the scene, but as an international senior athlete, she's really burst on the scene this year. And I think her run in Doha didn't get enough credit because if Safan Hassan hadn't been in front of her, we would have been just raving about G'day's run in Doha. It's one of the greatest female 10,000 meter runs ever. Absolutely. And if she was a man, and this is part of the sport, you know, people say we don't want to treat men's and women's bodies differently. I think one of the reasons why people don't treat them exactly the same, because a man that won world juniors twice, if you didn't doubt their age, you'd be raving about their potential. You'd say, oh my God, this is amazing. The fact that she's won two world junior titles and then did this 10,000 is insane. Yes. And I hadn't gotten to, 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 to the vapor flies, but I was going to get there. That was my second point. She's an amazing talent. And she's wearing the vapor flies. I mean, the record books are, are just going to be wiped out um, in all road, road action. So it's really, really remarkable. Uh, and again, you know, I actually, I'm going to blame employee 1.1, Steve, who's in charge of the homepage, because he he should have alerted me to the, to the significance of this or realized it. You know, again, it's just because people at 4420, people don't really think about it. And I actually, I have no excuses. I can't blame my little son for this. I actually got a text. Remember Ben? You guys remember Benjamin Ranero or Ben DeHaan, who ran in the Let's One singlet, beat Cam Levins, raced Galen Rupp a few years ago. I, I coached him for a little bit at Cornell. He was in the race, and he texted me afterwards. He's like, oh, man, I got chick- I got chicked by 30 seconds. He ran 44.50. You know, it's kind of his off seasons. He was pretty pleased with that. This is a 13.35, 28.17 guy who's in, you know, training hard, getting ready for the next season, goes out. You know, you break 45 minutes for 15K, you're thinking, hey, it's pretty good for this time of year. He's a 13-35-28-17 guy, and he was destroyed by her by 30 seconds. Yeah, just just phenomenal performance. It, it is sort of funny. I was trying to come up with a deleted thread of the week, and I was looking at deleted threads, and one of them is, let's run.com is becoming a joke. And that's also sort of a meme on let's run. I feel like we've been hearing that since about 2002. But <laughs> this one of the guy's criticisms was, there's no analysis of races, not enough coverage of special occasions. Well, I would disagree. I think we're one of the few websites that actually analyzes races. We do a tremendous job, and, and much of this falls on you, John, of previewing and recapping races. 
But then he says, just last Sunday, there was a world record for 15K by a woman, but there's no analysis of how this world record was accomplished and what it means for the 10K road and track world record. And I was like, okay, fair enough criticism. But I'm like, oh, it's a world world world, world, world I can't say it. World road record. Well, best actually officially, Weldon, is not a world record distance. Thank you. That's why those words couldn't come out of my mouth. Yeah. It's so off the charts. And I really think it makes us think once again, look at these shoes. What's going on with those? And it's kind of sad that we're going to maybe, I don't know, maybe sad isn't the right word, but is that a topic we're going to have every day is shoes. So great, fabulous run. Without these shoes, she did well at the track. It's nuts. I'm curious. So do we think, I have two questions. One, do we think she will break Ayana's 10,000 world record on the track in the near future? And two, when do athletes in the 10K start using Vaporflies as their racing shoes? Like, I don't, I don't, I didn't look at her footwear in Doha, but I don't, from my memory, I don't think the Nike athletes, I think most of them weren't wearing Vaporflies. Do we think this might give them an advantage in a 10K track race, or should they just stick with regular spikes? Well, I know that it's already happened at the collegiate level. My print, my alma mater, the Princeton Tigers, those guys were wearing the Vaporflies on the 10K on the track last year at the Ivy League Championships. BYU men wore it last year. Clayton Young wore it when he won the NCAA 10K. I think all of them did, and they went, what places did they get last year in that 10K? And this is why the IWF needs to, needs to get serious about this, because it, it, you know one of the things that I, I mentioned in the week that was is the 4% term, which was the original shoe, that was an average. One of the reasons why some people think these shoes should be banned, even if everyone has access to them, is they benefit different types of runners in a different fashion based on your foot strike and how long your foot is on the ground. So I think the range of these runners – and when the first study was like serious runners. They were like sub-31-minute 10K runners. Not, these weren't hobby joggers. And, and the range, I think, was like from 1% to 6%. So if you're a super responder, perhaps she is, then you know that could be massive. And then even with the new shoes, I mean – it's really remarkable. But yes, John, will she break the world record? Most definitely. I mean, 29-13 in a, in a back. I mean, we showed you the equivalence. 28. Now, it helped probably this race that she had men to run with. Well, I guess not that many men if she's smoking 13-35 guys. In terms of the shoe talk, I think it's kind of sort of pointless for us to speculate how much of an advantage there is. This just reiterates the need for the IWF to have scientists look at this and come up with a rule very quickly because we don't want sports – and winners to be limited to one shoe company or one sort of technology that nobody else has. So quickly, something needs to be done. All right. Well, there's our weekly shoe talk quota. And now we're going to hit another quota. Alberto Salazar. Oh, well, Robert, you don't want to go there yet. What do you want to say, Robert? This is not our weekly shoe talk quota. We're going to talk NCAA cross country. The vapor flies are so good, folks. They somehow figured out a way last week to severely impact, dominate, an NCA cross country regionals. We'll tell you why or how later on in this podcast. But before we get there, folks, remember to support the podcast. Go to let'srun.com slash shoes and purchase your shoes. Save some money. We'll tell you the lowest prices. We'll give you the best reviews. And even if you're not buying, need to buy some shoes right now, please review the shoes. Or you can go to the show notes, find the tip jar, and give that money to Jonathan Galt so he can buy me some Ravens, excuse me, some Patriots Cowboys tickets. Wow, that was shockingly professional, Robert. You teased an upcoming segment. You had a seamless ad read. And we even mentioned the show notes. I mean, I feel like Weldon normally does that stuff. You handled it with a plum. 
But anyway, let's do another podcast staple, the transition. We were just talking about shoes. We were talking about one of our weekly segments, which is always talking about shoes. Now let's talk about another of our favorite topics, Alberto Salazar, or in this case, one of Alberto Salazar's former athletes, Jordan Hesay, announcing late on Tuesday night that she is going to be mentored or she's taking on a coaching advisor. And that coaching advisor is no one other than former world record holder in the marathon, Paula Radcliffe. Uh, Jose is going to be relocating permanently to Arroyo Grande, California, which is her hometown. She'll be coached remotely. It seems like more of a partnership than a coaching relationship. What do you guys take on this? I think it's a good move. It'll be curious to see how she does on her own. I think she has spent a lot of time back in California in the past, but I think a lot of athletes need some day-to-day interaction with somebody. So who's going to be supervising the daily workouts? I think that's a critical component, but Paula Radcliffe, obviously I'm a bit biased. I rabbited her to her first world record. She's the still John, in my opinion, the non vaporfly world record holder. That's not an opinion, matter. That's a fact. She is the fastest marathoner who didn't run in baseball flies. Yes. You could argue the world record holder. I think Paula has a tremendous knowledge about running. I think she's sort of a natural marathon runner like Jordan is. So maybe their experiences, their physiology is similar. Uh, Sometimes though, people say, oh, the, the best athlete isn't the best coach because they're not used to the struggles or they can't relate to somebody who isn't quite that good. But I think Paula has a wealth of experience. I think this is a very good decision for Jordan. I mean, who else are you going to go to, right? Like she needs probably wants to stay within Nike. Maybe she goes to – I guess she could have gone to, right, the Schumacher group, which is interesting. She didn't even think about that. I assume she thought about it but didn't do that. But I think if she's going to kind of try to stay in California do it on her own, why not try Paula Radcliffe? She has a wealth of experience. Paula doesn't have the ex- – the experience coaching so it'll be interesting to see how it works out yeah i like the move i think uh like you said she's already spending a lot of time in california it's not like she was you know being hands-on coached by alberto in person every day and she has a pretty good idea of what works for her at this point but like you said paula has a lot of experience in the marathon i to my knowledge she hasn't coached an athlete before i don't think she certainly jose is the only athlete she's currently coaching so i think that'll be interesting but i also think it's not, you know, it sounded like she flew to Monaco. Sarah Lodge Butler had a nice piece on her and run as well today. She went to Munich to get her hamstring checked out after Chicago. And then she flew to Monaco and sort of mapped out her training with Paula. But it sounds like it was more of an advisor role as opposed to a strict like coach. You follow exactly everything I'm going to say, which I think is good. Paula can lend her expertise for something. She can say, hey, I think this session might be a little too long, but Jordan can sort of seems like things are working for her in California. I think it's probably a pretty good setup. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think the term that I saw was coaching advisor. I mean, who better than, than Paula Radcliffe? I do agree with what Weldon said. I think that a lot of times the best athletes are not good coaches. I mean, I think that was when you read some of these allegations against Salazar, he would scream and berate athletes like because they couldn't do the workouts. Maybe they're just not capable of doing the workouts. Um, so what better advisor than Paula? Plus, you know, we're ignoring the fact that her husband, Gary Lowe, is already a professional coach. He's coaching Mayor Mo Farah full-time. So, you know, and, and they're actually close to Salazar or, or were. So I'm sure that, you know, they have his notes and what, what he did with Mo and the marathon training and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I think that you you can rely – get both of their help on this. Um, a few people – 
you know, we're negative. I actually went into the message. I, this happened. I don't know what time it happened last night, John, but right before I went to bed, and actually I should have stayed up at 2 a.m. to analyze this 15K world record. I got so excited. But about 1130, I think I saw this and I, I had to delete the thread or not delete the thread, heavily edit the thread because I went on there and thought this was a good move. And just the post over and over, like this is ridiculous. Someone goes from as a coach with a doping allegations to a woman who has doping allegations from doper to doper, blah, blah, blah. It was just negative, negative, negative. And I don't have a problem with people thinking if they want to speculate or say that they think Paula Radcliffe, you know, her 215, 225 was too good to be true and that she was doping. If you make a, a, a rational argument, as to why you think that, you know, talk about some off scores or whatever, that's fine. But I just thought, like, I think most people are going to think this is a pretty good call. Why is it so negative? And then I clicked on the post. It was the same person that literally posted 20 different times on this thread. It was only about 50 posts deep under 20 different names. So that person was banned. All those posts were removed. So, guys, this is, moderation is very hard. We don't have a problem with you saying things about someone who is – I would say friendly with Weldon, most definitely. You can call her, say, suspect her stuff, but you can't do it 20 times under 20 different names. So you can use a real name, you can use a fake name, but just be consistent with the names that you're going to use. Even with the Paula thing, doping allegations, I wouldn't say there's doping allegations with her. I think there was some stuff off about like blood values, right? Like, I don't know, I guess it's the terminology you want to use. Of course, anyone who breaks the world record by that much, people are going to ask questions. And I think we rightfully allow that discussion and people can say what they want. But like, I've never seen anything more than like this run is too good. And then there was the stuff about what the off scores or something, but I would like to hear more about that. But it, I think comparing her to Alberto is unfair. Is that, would you guys agree with that assessment? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, Alberto has been banned from the sport. He's been convicted and kicked out for four years. Paula has not. Well, I mean, even Alberto say six months ago. Yeah. Well, I just, I think they were stronger. We had more, we had people speaking out. We had multiple witnesses coming forward and said they'd seen shady behavior. We had USADA investigating, like there wasn't really this smoking. I don't think there's a smoking gun with Paula. Uh, there has been debate about her blood values and off scores, but yeah, I think the suspicion around Salazar was higher. Not even debatable. I, I, I didn't see there was really, I mean, to me, it's not even close. Salazar was involved in a group where we know there was steroid use as an athlete. He then says to, I think it was a Duke University paper, that you can't set a world record without doping. And then we know that he's giving off-label prescription drugs to his athletes, and there's allegations about that. With Paul Radcliffe, there's never been anyone associated with her that has said anything about drugs in any shape, fashion, or form. People can talk about an off-score, this or that. She says she was dehydrated, and the IWF didn't have a problem with it. So – People can think what they want about that, but th th yes, they're not remotely close. Other than the fact that it's easy to you know to get mad at Big Bad Nike because they're a big corporation and stuff like that. Now, guys, one of the first things I thought about this after seeing that Hase is being coached by Paula and that Mo Farah is coached by Gary Lowe is could this open the door for a Mo Farah Galen Rupp reunion? Get all the old Oregon Project people back together, have him get coached with coached by Gary and he's training with Mo again. I don't see it happening, but I woke up this morning from a text from someone else who was like peddling that conspiracy theory as well. They're like, could this happen? Oh, it'll be, it'll be amazing. I, you know, there's probably 0% chance it happens, but I think it'd be kind of pretty, it would be pretty interesting if Mo and Galen get back together. I want to know really if they ever really were together because I forgot who it was I talked to or did I read this? I think I, someone may have told me this. 
recently that they never worked out together when he was at, on, on the Oregon. Who, who told us that? Jonathan Marcus told us that he said he never saw them work out together. He didn't say they never worked out together, but he said, I think around 2013, he would go to a lot of their workouts. And he said that Mo and Galen were always separate when he saw them. Yeah. So one thing that, that I do have a, a little bit of a concern here is I feel like Jose's biggest problem is staying, is, is in staying healthy. Right. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. can she get to the starting line healthy? And I feel like Paulo, was an is an incredibly tough athlete. I mean, we met her when we went to Ireland to see Jared Hartman, the famous physiotherapist there. He basically sort of shared a flat. I think Paula was right above us. We were, you know, he's got two apartments above his, his clinic there. We were there for like a week with her. So, and he was like, he's like, look, this woman has the highest pain tolerance of any athlete I've ever experienced. So, you know, one problem is, you know, Jordan could say, oh, my, my, my leg hurts. And Paula might be like, oh, push through it. You know, it might not be a good idea. I hope they realize that the goal right now is not to set the world record. The goal is to get to February 29th healthy and make that Olympic team. Yeah, well, Paul, I mean, Jordan is already kind of the person who pushes through that sort of thing. I think remembering her build up before 2018 Chicago, I was hearing, you know, she was doing everything she could. You know, she was injured, but still trying to get all these workouts in. And, you know, she's she's incredibly tough. And remember, she, she made it through basically an entire marathon build up before boston in 2018 and then they found uh, you know there was a stress reaction or a stress fracture they did an mri the day before the race so she she has a high pain tolerance too and i think yeah that's a fair point robert can paula sort of rein her in and one thing i also found interesting this comes from sarah lodge butler's article in runners world again is after chicago they found she had torn two of the three tendons of her hamstring she went to germany to be consulted by Dr. Hans Wilhelm Muller Wolfhart, he's the famous Usain Bolt, my Bayern Munich doctor. And they sort of decided they're not going to do surgery. That was the best option for her. And I found it really interesting because, you know, with the trials of, you know, we're only, what, three months away from the Olympic trials now. And there's not a lot of time. If you got an injury, you picked up an injury in October, you know, it says she's back to running. She's almost pain-free in running. Um, but her quote was to Sarah, I'm super thankful. It seems to be healing. We did a repeat MRI. The tear has healed back up. I need to do a lot of work on rehab strengthening, but structurally it's healed up. I will be in the trials, which is good news. I agree. It's good news, but the more I thought about, it, I mean, when I wrote my trials odds, I gave Hasey the best odds of anyone. And now this injury, we didn't quite know the extent of it, but now that we've learned a bit more about it, I think I'm bumping her down. I'm just worried that's not a lot of time to get back to your best before the trials in February. But John, why did you think she ran so shitty in Chicago? Anyway, you didn't think there was an injury? I No, there was an injury, clearly. But I thought it was something she said, I felt a sharp pain in my hamstring. And then she's just like, I'm not taking any chances. I'm backing out. You know, I'm preserving myself for the trials. I didn't realize it would quite be as serious as it is. Yeah, good point, John. I and mean, we should have really realized, like, she didn't even make it 5K. That had to be a serious injury. I don't think we even really factored that into the percentages. You gave her a 50% chance of making the Olympic team. Um, one thing that I will say is interesting, you know, that was a 46-year-old guy that can't even really, you know, if I went out and ran, it would be really hard. I'd have to focus to break a 10-minute mile if I was doing more than one or two miles, is the fact that the thing that fascinates me is, like, I'll barely be running, but the same injuries. Like, my hamstring, my left hamstring will still hurt like it did when I was running 100-mile weeks. So some of the stuff just never gets better. And that's, you know, I, I think that's why 
Salazar used to like to try to focus on that form. He wanted someone smooth who you're, you're running so many steps in a row, you know, just he wants equal stress in all parts of the body. Cause when one thing goes wrong, it leads to other things going wrong. So right. There's not a lot of time, John. And I think one thing with, with Paula, if I don't even know if Gerard Hartman's still working, but he's not that old of a guy he probably is. Jordan's going to get the best medical care possible. I guess under Alberto too, he had access to anybody who they wanted to go see, but I always feel like only the best athletes are even allowed to go see this Hans Mueller guy. Like Bolt would see him. Radcliffe would see him. They sometimes they seem like they have very serious injuries and then he would figure out the body. And having seen Gerard Hartman myself, I felt like there's some guys and they don't maybe not have the most like traditional training. They just understand how like the hip bone is connected to the knee bone, which is connected to the backbone. I mean, if your left hip is bothering you, the problem probably isn't originating from there that you need to figure out like what, where the problem originates and attack it there. So hopefully Jordan can get ready for the trials. Cause we want everyone healthy at the trials, right? Like we want the best athletes competing full fledged. And I think now that's a possibility. Yeah. Let me talk a little bit. Uh, sure. Anecdote. I mean, I've probably done it in the past, but there's probably new, new visitors. People weren't, weren't, if you're 25 years old and just or 20 years old in college, you don't know what happened 15 years ago or 10 years ago on Let's Run.com. But you know, this is my Pant Paula Radcliffe anecdote. We're showing we, we hear rave reviews about her pain tolerance from Jared Hartman. And on the wall, he's got pictures of every client: Holly Gabbard, Celeste, Turgot, all these guys, the legends of the sport. And he's like, I refuse to put Paula Radcliffe's picture up on the wall. And we're like, well, why not? He's like, I'm not putting it up there until she wins a gold medal. That's what she, that's what she should have. She's that dedicated, that much of a pain tolerance, et cetera. And we saw that firsthand. So um, one day we went up to their room to see if they wanted to go to dinner or something or lunch or whatever it was. And we, we knock on the door, go, in, go into their room. It's kind of like a dorm room where you have like a common room and then two bedrooms, you know, John, to the side. And the two bedrooms are, out, are on the street and, and, the door, and the common room was on the inside. And the bed has been moved from one of the beds has been moved from the bedroom. You know, it's these small single beds to the middle of, or maybe I don't know if it's a single bed or not, but to the middle of the living room, because that's where there was no cars and that's where people would sleep. So instead of sleeping with her husband or whatever, this is like in the off season, nothing is coming up. She lives is sleeping in the, in the living room so she can get better sleep. And I remember thinking like this woman is hammering workouts. She's got huge pain tolerance. And then she's got Jared Harbin working on her basically full time. She ended up hiring him just for her at, w- at one point in her career. So I was like, you know, people talk about doping. I-, I don't know that she's clean, but I'm like, she basically has legalized doping. If you have a full time expert physiotherapist just grinding your muscles out after your workouts, like that could be a big factor too. And Robert, I don't think you set up the story well enough. At the time, Paula Radcliffe was regarded as sort of like the girl who tried really hell, really hard, and finished second or third in the race. She had never had not made her marathon debut yet. And she'd run these track races at worlds and lead for 24 laps, then get out kicked on the last lap. And actually what's her best finish in the world tracks. I think she get a silver or bronze. I don't even know if she ever got a silver, but she definitely never won. Britain regarded her as the lucky loser. We would see her just hammering on these, this tow path. And she came back one day and Robert's like, Hey, how was your run? She's like, Oh, it wasn't, Nothing special. You're just doing a little marathon pace stuff, 515 a mile. And we did the math and we're like, oh my God, that's 218 marathon. Like she regards that as her marathon pace. That was the world record at the time. And so we actually went to like a London betting house. She was making her debut in London at some point over this time. We bet like 200 pounds on her. And it's the most money we've ever won betting. 
<laughs> we just thought no one knows she's going to be. She's a natural for the marathon. And Gerard Hartman saying like she's going to be a world champion. We're kind of like, who are you, man? Like, and then they also said her VO two and stuff and all that was off the off the charts. Well, I don't know what year that was. Well, because she did win nineteen ninety nine world championship ten thousand silver, but then the next year in the Olympics she was only fourth in the ten thousand. Okay, so at the risk of getting totally derailed, let's talk about something that's still in the news this week. It's the Mary Kane allegations against the Oregon Project and Alberto Salazar and the ensuing fallout. And the place I want to start with this is this piece that was done by Matthew Fudderman in the New York Times speaking to Amy Yoda Begley. And I just, I found this is probably the strangest thing that's emerged from this whole saga is he asked Amy, he was annoyed by her laugh said she was too negative, I think part of which was the result of her cat dying, and then asked her to sign a contract saying she wouldn't become friends with anyone else in the Oregon Project. I mean, that is one of the strangest stories I've heard in in running. That's nuts. Like, a legal contract? Like, Nike Legal signed off on this? I assume not, but it's just so bizarre. The more we sort of know about this group, the more bizarre it is, and I think they could sort of do whatever they wanted. 100%. And this look, this is proof positive Alberto Salazar was a complete ass. I mean, jerk. Do we, do we, I mean, how many stories do we need? But where were the checks and balances? A guy comes to the legal department and says, hey, I want you to write up a contract that says that this athlete can't, this employee or, you know, another contractors can't be friends with another contractor. Be like, are you fucking insane? Like, th- this is crazy. Absolutely. 100%. Crazy. There was also a great podcast hosted, uh, the Clean Sport Collective, Cara Goucho was one of the hosts on it, and they had Mary on as a guest. And you know, obviously, we know Cara has a grudge against Alberto, so it was very pro-Mary, but at the same time, like you know, a lot of bad stuff happened to Mary when she was out there. And I guess the main takeaway I had from this podcast was just this was the complete mismatch of these two people should never have been working together. Alberto... This was the a hyper professionalized cutthroat professional group. You know, e- even a lot of professional runners, I think, would struggle going into it just with the demands and the high expectations and all the pressure. But to throw a seventeen-year-old in there who didn't seem really well equipped to handle this situation, I think, is just you know, it was always going to lead to disaster. And you know, I say Mary wasn't equipped to handle it, but Alberto made it a thousand times worse. So, uh, you know, obviously he's the one to blame here, but I think it was just a mismatch of two individuals. That was certainly part of it. Well, yeah, John, we don't want to, I mean, the blame thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Walden last week said there's, does, there needs to be some nuance, but it's very hard in these things. So situations. It's like Alberto is the evilest person to ever walk on the earth and everyone else is white as snow. It's not that simple, but at it, it, some level, I mean, we, when a guy we're talking about a guy that will let you be friends with other people on the team. It's just so crazy. People need to see nuance because if people's takeaway from this is that men are the problem, or that Nike is the problem, or that Alberto Salazar is just the problem, that's the wrong thing to take, or that only evil monsters create this thing. Because there's a lot more nuance in this, and this problem is very pervasive. I mean, you have a couple things: abusive ways to talk about weight. One, just child phenoms maybe not are going to pan out. I think a lot of parents, child phenoms need to be sort of prepared. Like this may not work for you. And how do you deal with that? Discussing weight with these people. It's just sort of crazy. But I think if you look, I'll put the link to the podcast in the show notes. It's a good listen because it shows how this can develop, how you get to this point. And it's not just that Alberto's in there just being a complete ass to Mary. He says a few comments and, 
sounds like she really kind of takes these comments to way to heart. And then she says, that's why, you know, she wasn't running well and all this other stuff. It can easily go very quickly to an athlete really sort of searching for help. And there's some insight on the cutting and that sort of stuff. It actually didn't sound as bad from the New York times, not to condone any of this stuff, but it's just a much more nuanced picture than we originally got. And I think you need to, we need to understand the picture and the pervasiveness this to really combat the problem. Well, I am very impressed by how Mary's matured a lot. I mean, she comes across as a very powerful woman, but yeah, I mean, looking back to it, to me, it's obvious she should have never gone pro. And if she did go pro, you know, I mean, I guess financially she did, she did all right, but in terms of her well-being, never gone pro and then certainly never joined the Nike Oregon project. I mean, I was talking to another a fairly prominent coach. And he's like, I, he had the same idea I did. He said, when she went pro, I thought about calling up her father. I didn't know her father. I had no connection to him, but I thought about saying, this is just the wrong place for you. 100%. And then, you know, I mean, one thing that I was reminded of in, in this um, podcast, and, and then I, I called someone who, who sort of has connections to Bronxville was, and Mary talked about this, Kara asked her about this in the podcast was Mary had already struggled sort of at the high school level with being on the team. You know, she was on the girls' team. That didn't – they have a very famous coach in Bronxville. I, I, someone help me with his name. Very well-respected. Jim Mitchell. Yeah, Jim Mitchell. And I, I think that she thought that the other girls were bullying her. Nobody was supportive of her drive. And it's very hard when you're that driven. You know, you don't want to be doing the ninth-grade level of training. You want to be doing the professional level of training because she ends up running 410 and then 404. So – but she leaves the girls' team and, and is being then coached by the boys' team. That doesn't work out. And then she basically is coachless and then she finds Alberto. So, you know, I, I think that it's very hard to be that super talented. And then I don't know, I, I think it would have been hard for anybody. And then we have so many other examples of other teenage phenoms, particularly on the women's side that, that, that fail. So one of the saddest things to me is like, again, we talked about the headline, the way it's being viewed now is like Alberto ruined her. We'll never know. I personally think she probably would not have been a superstar you know, if she had gone somewhere else, but you know, it's impossible to say, isn't it? Yeah, of course it's impossible to say. And you know, did, did was she ruined because Alberto was an old white man? I mean, I think, I, I think that take is just way too simplistic, but you know, who's to say, like if she had gone to what start working with Jerry Schumacher, could he have done something? If like, you know, there aren't really many female professional coaches. So I think that's, that's also, that's a whole different issue that needs to be addressed, but you know, I, I'm not convinced that there's a coach out there that would have been able to keep her at this level. I do think there are coaches that probably could have done a better job of it, but we, yeah, we'd, ne- we'd never know. I mean, some people would say, why are we even debating this topic? She was treated poorly about Alberto. That should be the topic we're discussing. That's a fair point. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think we're trying to deny that. This is just sort of another tale of the debate of the whole story. And I've debated it, but again, I, I think she comes across as very impressive now. But yeah, John, the, the male bashing on this on this or on this whole topic is is starting to annoy me. I mean, I, I think I started to annoy me last week. The only segment of, of the population that you're op- allowed to openly mock and scorn is, is white men, particularly if they're old. That 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 helps to it. I mean, can't we get a little credit? We didn't we at least like what what's something controversial to white? Man? I guess hey, we invented Google, didn't we? I guess that was a young white man though. So um, that was a joke, people. The detractors aren't going to like uh, three white guys talking about this, but it, it's sort of fascinating into a whole nother realm. I've been on t- Twitter seeing some of the stuff. Some of the stuff was kind of prompted because of Leah O'Connor's comments last week. And we thought a lot about moderating and 
we can get to that in a minute. Like whether we have a separate standard for what can be said about a man versus a woman, is that fair or whatever? Well, there's just so many debates on the internet about stuff. Like some people on the left say strong, not skinny, that that's not an inclusive term because you're excluding skinny people. What about weak people? What is, what do we have against weak people? No, I'm sorry. I'm just being silly here, but. I mean, you can, and then the racist term, sexist term, these terms are so just sort of labels or love to be bandied about. And we've already discussed sort of was our coverage of G'day, did racism or sexism factor in there? And I would argue, and let's run one of the things we tried to do for the longest time is show that like these African stars, their stories are just as interesting. And, you know, there's wonderful stars there. And obviously maybe you'd be more interested in some from your home country, but there's great stories to be said there, but go ahead, Robert. Well, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, most of the coaches that have caused the problems are old white men, but that's just because most of the coaches are old and white. You know, I, I, I was actually talking to a college coach this week. It was a fascinating conversation. And he agreed with me. And he was like, look, there aren't that many prominent female coaches, but some of the ones I knew, do know have been horrific to women in terms of, of weight. And he shared an anecdote of how he recruited once a, a star runner and she got to campus and, and he recruited, he was battling it out with another uh, with a female coach for this runner. And, and um, you know, the runner came on campus, got injured, gained a lot of weight, like 15 pounds or something like that. And, you know, they were at a meet and the other coach, the female coach saw this runner running, couldn't believe how big she was. And he went up to the other coach and the male coach and was like, wow, look at Susie Johnson. My God, you didn't get what you bargained for there. And the man coach was like offended. He's like, how dare you talk to her like that? And what he said is, he's like, I've actually heard from some women that, when these women, female coaches make the insensitive coaches, it's even worse than a man doing it because when a man does it, some of the women runners athletes are like, well, he's a man. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's uninformed, but they expect a woman to know more, to be more sensitive to, to the weight issue. So John, if you really want to do the expose, you could sort of try to interview some of these, you know, I I think people of both sexes have been insensitive. Now I was sort of, Alberto Salazar wasn't just insensitive. He was over the top, but I, to me, an investigative story would be to talk to some of the female runners for some of these prominent female coaches, because from what I've heard, it hasn't been all, you know, amazing and supportive. Like, you know, and it's not just an all male system designed to, to keep women down. Right. I think there is nuance here. There are bad coaches and coaches who don't have their athletes best interests at heart, both male and female. But as you said, there are overwhelmingly more male coaches, um, is it a problem that it's inherently because they're men that they have this problem that they can't understand women? I mean, I would say a woman probably has a better chance at understanding a, another woman, but you've also got a lot of successful men coaches that women swear by. So I think there's just nuance and it's we don't want to be paint any side of this debate with an overly broad brush. I think that's the key for this whole thing in general is everyone is an individual and needs to be treated with dignity and respect regardless of their sex, gender, status. A minor kid, especially one who's very vulnerable, need, probably needs even like more hands-off gloves. You know, a, a one-size-fits-all approach, if your coach does not fit, do, can some people thrive under that? Of course. Uh, look, look what Alberto Salazar did with Savan Hassan. But with Mary Kane, disaster. And I think one thing that came out from the podcast that was pretty interesting was, I think Alberto reversed two things, weight and performance. He seemed to be fixated, at least according to Mary, fixated on weight. And in 2014, this is before she was out there full time. He's like, you're too heavy, four world juniors. And I think he had probably noticed, thought she's not as fit as she was the year before. So he starts focusing on her weight instead of her fitness. And I think, honestly, she wasn't as fit that year. But let her go race. Let her go be 
get beat, let her learn some stuff instead of thinking like what Alberto didn't see is like, it's quite common for a woman of this age. Maybe she'll tail off for a couple years. Lynn Jennings like tailed off, I think for six or eight years and came back to the top. Mary Decker had a huge down period. You know, there's also the possibility, right? Some of these people never make, make it. Sarah Baxter, same. I think she's one year ahead of Mary Kane. Never lost a high school race to her final high school race when she lost in XN. You guys ever heard of her? Well, I've heard of her. She hasn't amounted to anything in the running world. She went to Oregon. She seems happy now. And that, that doesn't mean a bad thing. Some pro coach didn't ruin her. And so some people don't work out. And in high school, it's very difficult to stand out because you're successful. It's interesting. I was reading some of these articles when she turned pro. And people are like, doesn't she have a right to turn pro? There was just sort of this infighting in the Bronxville running high school crowd. And they're like, why is the high school scene for everyone? That's a good point, right? Tennis stars go to these tennis academies. But then it's a whole nother level of pressure, less supervision. There's just needed to be a support system in place by Mary's agent, Nike, everybody, her parents, family, and this failed her. And Alberto clearly is getting most of the blame Rightfully so, probably. But it's just a cautionary tale, right? And not everyone who's going to be ruined is ruined by some evil professional coach. You just have to look out for these kids. Yeah, I just think it's good that this story has come out, that Mary is sharing her her story so candidly because it will let other people in her situations learn from it. And it will also help highlight some of the issues in professional running at Nike, you know, that need to be addressed. One question I have moving forward is what can the solution be? Like, again, I was talking to someone this week. He's like, maybe Nike should just come out and say, we're not going to sign anyone until they're at least 18 years of age. Adidas, you can have them, New Balance, whatever. Because if anything, they need, you know, you need extra support, extra help. Teenage years are very hard, particularly for for women, you know, as y'all said. And, you know, Mary Kane, in some ways, I would say was a young 15-year-old, young 16-year-old. She's going through the mix zone with – a teddy bear. And I, I got a fascinating email from a physician who listens to the podcast, a pediatric emergency department physician. And he's like, look, you can Google something called positive teddy bear sign. If you say that to any physician in America, it means something. So there, someone like that is going to need extra help, you know, extra support. And, and this was, that was not what she was put into. So, you know, it's just, it's just sad, really. You know, and, and as, as we said last week, we, we don't know what would have happened if it hadn't happened. We'll never know what would have happened. But as I said, you know, I didn't like how the article, the way it was head, it was titled. It was like, well, if it had worked out, it might be okay. No, it's not okay, period. We need to support people, you know, moving forward. But one thing that I, I found interesting was this is now going on to, you know, non-Mary Kane type stories. You know, in Britain, they, they had a fascinating article in, in The Telegraph about – whether Charles Van Kemeny, the 2012 Olympic coach, was insensitive to women. And I thought this was fascinating. They asked him for comment um, to allegations that he had questioned a number of female athletes' weight in frank exchanges. And his response was, over the last 40 years, I have called a number of athletes fat because they were. I mean, he did not, you know, run from this, you know, sort of allegation and then there was a big specific allegation from jessica and hill i think who won the gold medal right john in the heptathlon yeah it was like only one of the most famous gold medals in track and field history yes she did win it yeah and her coach said that he this van comedy was insensitive and blah 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 van comedy again denied that very specifically he said i asked her in a formal review meeting attended by her coach and jess herself after daegu worlds whether she was in the very best body shape she could have been in 
Unfortunately, body weight and fat percentage have a strong effect on the point score and the results in competition. She, as well as her coach, admitted that she was better the year before in that sense. A completely normal question to ask in any elite performance review. And that's one thing that Jen Rhines, a three-time U.S. Olympian who had a, a pro career for over 20 years, she posted on a, a long article on jenrhines.com where she said, look, I had a long pro career. I had my period every week. But she's like, we've got to get away to be able, you can talk about weight but not have it be this overly dramatic discussion, you know, if you're a coach. And I just think it's very, very dicey. I, I, again, I know of some very prominent uh, college coaches. He says, I don't mention the word weight. Once he said, once I started coaching the world, men and women, I don't mention weight to men or women. If they ask me about weight, I say, I'm not a nutritionist. Go speak to the nutritionist. You know, it's just handed off to somebody else because it's such a difficult situation. It is interesting how weight is such a like loaded concept, right? Jen Ryan said, you should just view it as like your VO2 max or some sort of number. But that's not how it is. And I think that issue is way more so for women. And, you know, that brings up the issue. Should some of these things be treated differently for men and women to pretend everything's exactly the same is, is nuts. I mean, society sends a very different message to women. But did you guys see today's show? Hoda and Jenna weighed themselves on national television this week. And I was like, what? That's nuts. Like, that just like women never do that. Men don't do that. But for a woman to weigh herself is kind of crazy. And I think Jenna, she said she, I think she came in like 30 pounds heavier than she thought. She just had a baby, but she said like in her fitness app, she puts down some number that was like 30 pounds less than she actually is. Well, I think there are some people for whom weight isn't a big taboo subject. Like Jen Ryan seemed pretty comfortable talking about it most of her career, but there are other people, especially vulnerable, you know, some teenage girls who might be vulnerable and wondering, wondering, questioning their self-worth and, seeing other people's bodies around them being different from theirs. That's a tough time to be, you know, a teenager is going through that stuff. So I think it really just, it depends on the individual, but you know, you have to have a coach who knows the individual well enough to get a read and say like, is this something I should be broaching with them? Can they handle it? Or, you know, even talk to them like, cause even broaching saying like, do you want to talk about your weight? Would you be comfortable talking about your weight? If someone's really having doubts about that, they might just think even, bringing that topic up could be problematic. So, you know, you just got to, you really have to know the individual and know, you know, whether they are equipped to handle it or not, a discussion about that subject. I think look at the individual is a good way to end this segment. I would agree on that. You know, I think we got some other stuff, NCAA Cross to talk about later. One thing I wanted to bring up, I haven't seen this getting a ton of attention. You know, it's, it's been, I think the New York times did actually have an obituary on him, uh, written by the Frank late Frank Litsky, Harrison Dillard. Did you guys see this passed away last week at the age of 96? Do you guys know who this is? Absolutely not. I saw this in the show notes and I'm like, why are we talking about some, I presume old white guy? I guess he could be African-American. He was African-American. Do you, Robert, do you know who Harrison Dillard is? He was a famous track and field athlete. Okay. Do you know anything other than that? No. No. Uh, this is why I want to bring it up, because I didn't know very much about him either. This guy is a total legend. All right? Let me give you his resume. So he grew up in Cleveland, went to the same high school, East Technical High School, as Jesse Owens. He saw Jesse Owens as a young boy and was inspired by him. He saw him, met him at a parade. So 1948, he goes to the Olympic trials. He's the best. 110 meter hurdler in the world. He won 82 straight 110 hurdles races at one point. And 
he gets lost in the final of the trials, you know, did, doesn't make the team. Fortunately, he had run the 100 because he wanted to be on the 100-meter relay team. So he got third in that event of the trials. He goes to the London Olympics, wins the 100 meters, and then wins gold in the 4 by one as well. Four years later, comes back, runs the 110 hurdles at the Olympics, wins that as well, So and then wins the 4 by one again. So he's the only man or woman in history to win Olympic titles in both the 100 meters and the high hurdles, and four, four Olympic gold medalists, four Olympic golds, just an all-time legend of the sport, and he passed away. He was the oldest U.S. Olympic champion. He died last week at the age of 96. You guys don't seem that impressed by winning an Olympic title in the 100 and then four years later coming back and winning it in the 110 hurdles. That, to me, is one of the most impressive track things I've ever heard. First of all, rest in peace, Harold. It's kind of crazy. Harrison, ever... Harrison Dillard is his name. Oops. Rest in peace, Harrison. The thought was there. Uh, the, I was sending kindness his way and to his family. But it is sort of crazy, right, that this guy isn't more prominent if you won the 100 and the 110 hurdles. Even with all the, like, Gail Devers talk when she was trying to do that, I never heard of this guy. Fascinating. It was a different era, obviously. I was just really impressed. My biggest question, biggest question coming out of this, they said 1948 was the first time, it was so close, the final in the 100 meters, that they had to use photo finish. They said it was the first time it was used at the Olympics. How did they figure out who won these races before photo finish? Like you can usually tell watching a sprint race, you can kind of see like, okay, this guy was first, but like a lot of times it's very, very bang, bang. Do they have people watching every lane to see who beat who? Or I just want to know what happens if a race was decided by like 0.01. Did they just kind of guess? I'd love to know. Like, how do you remember who was in third and fourth and fifth? (laughs) Is there like a committee there voting? Oh, three people thought this guy was first. One guy thought the other guy was first. And other people are studying second and third. It's kind of crazy. John, you should take a year off and write a book about it, but it, it won't sell very well. <laughs> yeah, time, timing issues and track and field in the 1930s and 40s. Instead, go get a PhD and you know have the university pay for it. So I, I think that's how those things get done. Okay, let's move on to NCAA cross country. Uh, we had... Eight cross-country meets last week, and we had one road race, uh, the Northeast Regional. Kind of nuts. There was snow in Buffalo. The course was just totally frozen over. It was pretty. It seemed like the footing was just unsafe for runners. I wasn't there in Buffalo. I saw some pictures, though. It looked really tough to run on. Like I don't totally blame them for shifting to the roads. But, Robert, as you said, the vapor flies had a huge effect. I mean... If you look at the top finishes crossing this video, I think the top seven men's finishes all wore the vapor flies. Harvard's whole team had them. Harvard won that race. The Cornell women all used them, and they were ranked 11th in the region. Shockingly, they finished second. They qualify. Just, I mean, it it was a 6K race for the women, 10K for the men, so it wasn't, you know, the full marathon, but the, the vapor fly debate has come to the NCAA cross country. I'm not sure Robert's eligible to talk about this topic. He is a former Northeast Division college cross-country coach. But in classic Rojo fashion, he sounded off on a thread and was like, this is ridiculous. They're canceling the cross-country race and putting it on the roads, a bunch of snowflakes. And then he agreed. I think he agreed that it was dangerous to have it in cross-country because the course sounds like a really bad course to begin with, and there was a lot of standing water when it froze. No, Rojo just saw the opportunity to make a pun on the word snowflake and it was too good to pass up. I think that's what happened. I saw the course. They tweeted out pictures of them. They got the nine inches of snow off the course. It looked fine, so I thought they should run on it. 
Then that was around 11 o'clock at night when I woke up the next morning and spoke to some people in Buffalo. I was convinced that they made the right call. I had forgotten. We'd run on that course. It's basically a swamp when it gets wet. So when it got that cold, it's just like an ice sheet, which made it impossible. I, I talked to two people who said there's no way they should run on it. But then I became fascinated by, wait a minute, are people going to run in the vapor flood? And the answer was yes. John Harbor men and women win both races. They were only seated fifth and fourth. Of course, as you mentioned, the Cornell women were 11th. They win it. Now, they weren't the only schools with Vaporfly. So I think both teams, both Cornell and Harvard, ran better than they did you know, so far in the season. They deserve credit. Alex Gibby, the new Harvard coach, is, is a fantastic coach. I've known him for a long time. He used to be at William Mary in Michigan. And then Mike Henderson, the new Cornell coach, He'd been coaching the men, I think, for two two years, and this year he's added the women's to his, his thing. He did a really good job too. And But still, I mean, th- there's a fascinating – I've got a lot of this on the week that was. but And I don't know if you all have heard about this. There is – this. you know you know the, the, the joke guys that everyone on Let's Run, they make, what, 200 – they have a sub-14-minute 5,000 PR. They make over 200 – quarter million dollars a year, and they all have supermodels as wives, right? Yeah. Wait, you guys don't? Of course we do. Of course we do. Well, I don't have the sub fourteen minute five thousand PR. Like, oh yeah, I don't either. I'd actually, uh, yeah, we'd be, co- I'd be called out for that too. I know the lesson message board the brutal. Did never broke fourteen. John, I, I guess you just don't want to ask how much money I make, but I think you know the other two for me. I mean, you've met my wife. How dare you? But are we allowed to talk about someone's appearance? That's actually a topic of discussion we're having. Under what circumstances, if any, we should allow anyone to discuss someone else's appearance on Let's Run? This is sort of proof along of, of the amazingness of our message board poster. There was a post on the message board by Bijan Mazahari. Now, I don't know if he's married, but this guy is an eight-time All-American. Now, middle at the Division Three level. He went to Williams where he, paid, he had PRs of 14-11 and 29-39. He has recently qualified for the Olympic trials. He ran 215 in the marathon in Chicago. He is a volunteer coach at Caltech where he's getting his PhD in computing and mathematical mathematical sciences. Well, anyway, so very smart guy, very fast runner. He has analyzed the results of the regionals and posted them on his WordPress website. And the stats were fascinating. He ran a couple of different ways. He did a regression of one thing and then something else another time. It was way over my head on how he did it. But again, this is a guy that's getting his PhD in computing and mathematical sciences. And basically, depending on how you looked at it, he had the Vaporfly teams running. This is a women's 6K, between 17 and 24 seconds better under these two scenarios. I split the difference instead of his 20.5 seconds, which would be like a 1.69% difference. So it's not quite 4%, but that's still pretty, very significant. And if you, under one of these analysis, he redone it without, without the Vaporflies, and Cornell went all the way down from second down to fifth place. I think my biggest, my whole issue with this Vaporfly thing is that we just, it's kind of robbing these athletes of of their glory and we don't know if it's just or not. Like, look, maybe it did have a big impact, but also these, you know, the Cornell women, the Harvard men and women, they all ran great races and they deserve credit for that. But then there's always going to be the question like, well, how much was it aided by the shoes? And that's just something that, you know, it annoys me. I just like, sometimes you just want to commend them for bringing their best, you know, when it mattered the most. And we can't really totally do that anymore. John, you're looking after out for the wrong athletes. They're going to nationals. What about the ones who didn't have the shoes and aren't going to nationals? Well, but again, we don't know. Did, would they, did they get robbed or was it just, they lost to athletes who ran better and happened to be wearing the shoes? I, 
I mean, in some ways, this is a, I haven't read the study yet, but this is almost like a perfect experiment, right? Like you have a bunch of athletes, some wearing vape fly, some aren't. I'd like to see it. If it's 1.6%, that's interesting because previously, despite the naming of the shoe, we thought for performance, it might make a 1% difference. And I'm just tangentially, anecdotally, excuse me, tangentially, anecdotally, I thought this second shoe is better than the first. But now he's saying 1.6%. Well, that doesn't sound, oh, 1.6 versus 1. That's 50% better than the other shoe. So that's a huge difference. Once again, IWF, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Now, I, I, I think I want to make sure this studies. I think we can fine tune it because I don't think he has the full list of teams. I think he only assumed that Syracuse, Cornell, and Harvard had him. I think actually John Dartmouth may have been wearing them, is what I was told. Certainly at least a few Dartmouth guys were, yeah. Oh, explains it. Dartmouth. Out the back of the heps? The turnaround, yeah. The only way they beat Yale at this thing was by cheating. Wait, yeah, oh yeah, no one at Yale can afford Vaporfly as well then. John, I don't understand, think you understand, but Yale is big time athletics. We have a sponsorship school-wide with Under Armour. Robert, thank you for Baltimore for supporting the underprivileged Yale Bulldogs. Well, that was the interesting thing. So a, a lot of these teams had, were already in Buffalo when this, when this decision to go to the road race was happening. So some of them had to... St- send people back to get shoes, pick up shoes. Some schools don't, a lot of schools actually don't give their athletes uh, flats either because they don't want them to get hurt in training or they just don't have the money for it. So some people didn't have flats. Some schools just took the spikes out of their cross-country spikes and ran in those, which is crazy. So you definitely had, you know, I'm sure some of the back of the pack people were just running in their trainers, you know, for the schools that really don't emphasize cross-country. So pretty interesting on so many levels, really. I found the mad scramble to get the vapor flies was really entertaining to me. Like you had, yeah, the assistant flying, you know, staying home or whatever and going to get the shoes. You had like basically all of the area running stores were cleaned out in Buffalo of their vapor fly industry inventory. You had Heartbreak Hill Running Company in Boston. They had someone essentially, I think they gathered up all their vapor flies they had here and like drove a van out to Buffalo just so they could sell them to everyone at the meet. And it's just like, ama- like that's exactly what you do. You're like, oh my God, this is like the greatest supply demand. You just have an overwhelming supply. Get all of your stock out there, you know? Who knew? I didn't realize the vapor flyers that, that common. So in the week that was, when this is published, I have the inside story of how Harvard got the shoes, how Cornell got the shoes, and how Syracuse got the shoes. Because none of them had full teams worth of shoes before heading there. And they're all different. I didn't. Who knew? Like, so Harvard, I'll, I'll share the Harvard story here. He said about an hour before they were leaving to go to the airport, they got a, an email saying that they might move it to a road race. So he told everyone, get your flats. He said three or four kids already had the, had the vapor flies. And then he said he went online. He said it was very easy. So I just went online and went to Dick's. I'm like, who would even know that Dick's Sporting I, – I didn't know that, that a massive sporting goods store would have vapor flies, like they're that popular. He said, yeah, I just bought them all online, just reserved them, and picked them up the next morning at the store in Buffalo. Kind of crazy. So regionals, those happen. NCAA's coming up on Saturday. Robert and I are going to be in Terre Haute. It's awesome. I, I, you know, always one of my favorite meets to go to every year. I think we should quickly run through some of the, you know, storylines going here. Weldon, do you have questions? What do you guys want to talk about about NCAA cross? Well, I think an easy way is to first of all plug our sponsor, Running Warehouse, let's run.com. $200,019 prediction contest is up. You can get your picks in. And we put up a contest last night. So some picks are in. And we can look at the preliminary results because they essentially give us a ranking of all 31 teams in there and the top individuals. This year, there's like runaway favorites, essentially, in three of the four races the team race, Northern Arizona men. 
right now they're getting like 98% or something of the first place votes. Heavily favored over Colorado. One guy gave number 12 Notre Dame first place vote, but otherwise NAU and Colorado are the only ones with first place votes. Arkansas women, they were favored last year and definitely didn't get they want the oh, They want the favorite, though. They were one of the teams we thought could win. But I think they were the number one favorite, no? They were? I... I certainly wouldn't have picked them. I will look back at the polls here and just one. I thought it was New Mexico or maybe Colorado. Like Colorado kind of sprung the upset, but I thought like, I didn't think Arkansas was on number one last year. That would have been surprising. I'll double check. But Arkansas has 10 times as many first place votes as Stanford. Stanford's number two, Brigham Young number three, Washington and New Mexico rounding out your top five. On the men's side right now, it's Northern Arizona one, Colorado two, Brigham Young three, Stanford four, Portland five. And the individual races... It's like Edwin Kurgat, Iowa State, heavy, heavy favorite. I mean, he's pretty much getting – he's got more first-place votes by far than everyone else combined. Connor Mance, the sophomore from Brigham Young, a second. Gilbert Keegan, Keegan of Alabama, third. Jordy Beamish of NAU, fourth. And Joe Klecker is fifth. On the women's side, much tighter battles expected. Winnie Kaladi of New Mexico, she's actually ranked number one, but Alicia Monson of Wisconsin is actually getting more first place votes. But she kind of faded a bit last year, so some I guess some people aren't putting her second or third. So overall, she's ranked behind Kaladi. And then Taylor Werner of Arkansas, third. Edna Kerr got past champion four, and Erica Burke of BYU, fifth. Well, those numbers kind of make sense to me because I think that, yeah, the most open – battle i would say is the women's individual between alicia monson and wayne kaladi i think it's just those two i'd really be shocked if anyone else won but they're the top two returners from last year kaladi was second monson was fourth they're both ncaa champs on the track monson won the indoor 5k early you know in, in march and kaladi won the 10k in june and they've only lost to each other this season. So Kaladi won at Notre Dame and then Monson turned the tables on her at the Nuttycomb invite in October. Kaladi has just been winning by ridiculous margins in her last two meets though. She won the Mountain West by I think 48 seconds and then 49 seconds and then won the Mountain Regional by 57 seconds. And that was, I mean, granted it's regionals, but yeah, this is she did the same thing last year. She just she got beat at pre-nats by Monson and then turned it on and started crushing everyone at the end of the season. I think the big thing about here is is can she gap Monson before the finish line? Because I think most people agree Monson has a better kick. But at the Nuttico meet, Monson was actually the one who took off with a mile to go and dropped Kaladi. So they they're very even. They've you know, they've split they've since the start of last cross country season, they're four and four against each other. So I think it's going to be a great race between those two. The other ones, I mean, Kargat in the men's race is, he's definitely the favorite, but I wouldn't be shocked if he wins. NAU, I'd be pretty shocked if they lose. They've just been dominant all year. But, you know, Colorado maybe could make something. I think Colorado is probably the best bet. Maybe Stanford. I don't know what's up with Stephen Fahey, the NCAA steeplechamp. Like, I think people thought Stanford had a chance to win this year at the start of the year because there was some uncertainty about NAU. But NAU's freshmen have really stepped up. And, Fahey has not been the guy that you know we thought he could be for Stanford. And then the women's side, yeah, Arkansas. I mean, they've got four studs up front uh, with Taylor Werner and Devin Clark, Karina Viljoen, and and uh, Katie Izzo. The question is essentially: Is there five Lauren Gregory? 
what is she going to get from them? You know, what are they going to get from her? But she's still pretty good. I mean, if they go, they, if they all run sort of that typical race, they should win. But Arkansas, the last two years, is also bombed at this meet. Well, John, I would like to see I'm waiting to make bold proclamations on Saturday to I get to talk to some of the coaches and actually honestly read your previews because I hope that in the women's team preview, you go through the last several years. The Arkansas women have choked at this meet so many times in recent years that they've been so good this year. But I want to know, like, weren't they really good in years past too? Or was it not nearly this dumb? I mean, I don't think it was nearly this it's dumb. Not as, it's not this good. Last year, they went one, two, three, four at regionals. Granted, they're in a dog shit region, the South Central region. But this year, they went one, two, three, four, five at regionals. Perfect scoring at regionals. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. And they didn't run their number five runner, Lauren Gregory. They rested her. So they went one, two, three, four, five with their top four and their six. Well, John, I was about to say, like, you were questioning their fifth. I'm like, they went one through five at regionals, but it wasn't even the regular fifth. Shows what a shitty region that is. Is it a false premise that Arkansas has choked it? Because I owe an apology to the Arkansas women. I I said they choked. Robert said they choked. But they only ranked fifth last year in the Let's Run.com polls. And where did they finish, Weldon? 14th. Oh, I would say it's pretty bad. It's out of the top 10, but I'm like, they weren't supposed to win. So maybe I'll... I guess I could see what they were ranked in 2017 as well. But John, I read the I read the men's individual preview last night, and you know, I mean, you were debating whether Galen Rupp is the last American man to to have won the title. Um, I think in 2008, and you're wondering, you know, is that streak going to continue? And it seems to me that, I mean, you've got Kurgat as the favorite. He's a 1334 guy. You've got Gilbert Kaigan of Alabama. He's also 134. Vincent Kiprop of Alabama, 1337. But if any American is going to do it, let's be honest, it's going to be Connor Mance. Uh, you talk about Joe Klecker and, and Thomas Radcliffe. You know, they're all 1330 guys, but Mance actually has the best personal best of, of any 5,000 guy in this field, right? 1329. Mm-hmm. He also got a better 3,000 PR than these people at 750. He might have the best 10K PR as well, 2818. Yeah. And he's only lost once this year, and that was the Mountain Regional. Yeah, so he's basically undefeated because he's not trying to win the Mountain Regional. Right. On paper, I, th- I think he's got a shot. I guess, why are so many people going with Kurgot? Just because he's been so dominant this year? Yeah, he, he has the most impressive race of anyone this year. That was Wisconsin, He the Nutty Come Invitational. He just took over with 2K to go and, and crushed everyone. And, you know, he's the top returner from last year. Uh, he beat Mance in the, on the track in the NCAA 5000 though he lost to Gilbert Keegan and Thomas Ratcliffe in that race, but he's beat Ratcliffe a couple times heads ahead. Yeah, essentially. But here's the thing, the big unknown about Kogart, he hasn't raced Keegan or Kiprop or Connor Mance. That's what we're waiting for at NCAAs. So, well, do you have the, do you have the research from 2017? Looks like Arkansas, at least in the coaches poll in 2017 was number six. So it's sort of a false premise that they choked. I don't even know what they finished that year, but 13th again, they, you know, they had, 2017, I'll give them some slack because they had some injuries to Lauren Gregory and Devin Clark. That sort of led to the underperforming. And Lance Harder, their coach, he admits their focus is on the track, you know, and they've already won titles. This is the other big storyline. They're going for the calendar year sweep. They won NCAA indoors. They won NCAA outdoors. They're going for cross country. And yeah, he's like, look, we train them for the track, but they know they have a chance to do something pretty special in cross country. So far, they've hit all the boxes in 2019. Well, that's sort of a cop-out because don't talk about track when we're cross-country. The goal is to win on Saturday. 
but they've never been the favorite before, right? If you're the fourth or fifth, fifth, sixth pick and you finish 13th, Argit's choking, not a good job. Maybe, you know, they're just in a really weak region, so their early performances look good. But this year they've been good everywhere. I mean, they've just been dominant. So I expect them to win on Saturday. But I don't know, a Southern school going up north. There's tons of upsets at NCAA cross country. On the team side, a lot of times, we think NAU is a lock. The Jerry Schumacher Wisconsin team, right? That had Tegan Camp and Slinsky. They lost? Who else was on that team? That's crazy. Oh, that was one of the great. They had Simon Baru was that best guy. He was the individual champion. Um, yeah, who else? They had Tim Nelson. I mean, that was an all-time loaded squad. They they won in 2005, but they lost to Colorado in 2004. And Matt Withrow, remember him? He was going to be like the world's next greatest thing. And I think that's an example. Matt Withrow, German Fernandez. A lot of male stars even don't pan out, but it's sort of with them. It's not talked about or viewed through the sort of body image, body transition. You know, there's a, there's lots of reasons. I was looking at the Foot Locker results for Sarah Bax, Baxter and Mary Kane years, and it's just crazy. Even on the men's side, just if you're doing well in sport in the high school level, enjoy it because there's no guarantee of success. So be able to enjoy that. I think that's a message we need to get across to a lot of people. If you're not familiar with that Dream Team, go ahead and Google Wisconsin Dream Team site, letsrun.com, and you can read some articles we wrote about it. Since we're talking about high school stars, John, how about a shout-out to the podcast listener who broke Craig Virgin's legendary Illinois State record? Didn't he email you or something? Josh Methna. Yeah, he. Uh, I congratulated him because, again, this is all-time. Like, Detweiler Park, this record had stood for – I think it had stood since 1973 or 1972, 1972, I believe. And Craig Virgin, who went on to win two world cross country titles, held it. So many great guys have taken runs at it. Yeah. You know, like Chris Derrick, uh, Jim Spivey, the Torres brothers, Tim bro, Evan Jager, and uh, Lucas Vosbikas, the two time footlocker champ. Most recently, uh, Josh Methner finally took it down podcast listener. So, yeah, congrats to him, and uh, excited to see what he does in the postseason. I got to get him on the podcast. We got to get him on. I know. Like when I started the website, I was I mean, we were just like early twenties. So one of the first things I ever did was interview Ryan Hall, and he was still in high school. Well, the first Bolden this week found the first page he can look back on. on Let's run. It was a question about like who's the better talent, like Dathan Ritzenheim, Alan Webb, or somebody else. Don Sage, yeah, Don Sage. So since uh, I guess we should update our listeners, um, Leo O'Connor has declined our invitation to be here on the podcast to talk about our moderating policies. So maybe we should have this high school guy on. I don't know. Maybe that's too much pressure. You don't have to be on if you don't want to, young man. We don't want to unduly to go to college no matter what. Even if you break four this year, please go to college. If he gets a Drew Hunter type deal, I mean, this again, I don't. Uh, this is a lot of pressure or whatever. But I'm just saying, any. I would say if any hypothetical high school gets a Drew Hunter deal with the amount of money, you know, that he was rumored to get from Adidas, that was, you know, that might not be a bad decision to take it, especially because Drew's doing pretty well as a pro. Oh yeah, real quick on the moderating, I had an email conversation with Leah, and. Essentially, we're both in agreement on one thing. We can do better on the moderating. And we have a new dashboard in place this summer. And one thing that sort of made us realize or discuss is the problem, I feel like, in the Leah case wasn't our policy. It's that we didn't remove stuff quicker, quick enough. So, I mean, her post was removed four years ago. But 
we want even if something you know you could say oh it comes with the territory with a pro or something people are going to say stuff people discuss lebron james but there's certain t- types of topics we won't don't want discussed and if something offensive is said we want it removed quicker and last week i sort of started the discussion what type of post what post on let's run that are up or threads that should be removed that haven't been and i feel like fortunately in some ways for us a lot of more political or discussing sensitive issues and people are saying, oh, this is a sexist post. There's sexist post in here. And I'm like, well, you're three pages deep on this thread and something offends you. I'm kind of fine with that. Obviously report them. Some of them I agreed with, some I actually removed. But in terms of running, it's a different topic. I think one thing I will discuss this week is under what circumstance, if any, should someone be allowed to discuss someone's appearance? And the least stuff, obviously, we don't want. But can you say, oh, that person looks good or like they're jacked or maybe weight tied to performance, that sort of stuff? Or should we just decide as a community we want that off limits? Personally, I think it's all about whether it's relevant to the discussion at hand. Random comments about looks are totally not relevant and, and not allowed. You know, it's, it's just like any any topic, like whatever we're talking about, it needs to be relevant to that topic of discussion. Certainly names and labels should not work. Um, guys, podcasts have been going on for a while. We need to be running it down, winding it down soon. One more thing I wanted to say about regionals, folks. We want to give a shout-out to Bo Wagoner, the Duke, former Duke runner, um, who is another really smart, like, PhD-type guy, right? And he has got the computer program that tells you who the NCAA large teams are going to be. We've been running that program for a number of years. It's always right. And he put it up on his own website. This uh, year. Actually, full disclosure, it wasn't right last year. But apart from that, it's always been right. XCQuals.com. And – Basically, you know two things when the regionals come around. Bo Wagner is going to get it right, and FlowTrack is going to get it wrong. For the third time in five years, they've gone online and and published the wrong list of teams for nationals. But I do have good news to report on the FlowTrack front. A fan sent me a video from the start of the Northeast Regional, and FlowTrack took it down. They said it was a copyright infringement. I don't know how they would own the copyright to a fan's video. But um, they took it down, and I fought it with YouTube. I actually talked to the full track lawyer. He admitted that they had no legal grounds to take that down, that if anything, it would be an NCAA rights violation. So, anyways, it's back up. But I imagine if fans are taking videos of the Nationals, they're going to try to get them taken down again, which is is dumb in my opinion because they don't have a copyright to it. Well, real quick, on the Bo Agner thing, everyone knows that computer program. I guess I said it's perfect, but last year was the first time maybe it wasn't. But, like – FlowTrack does a lot of great things for college running. Why wouldn't they just run the computer program <laughs> instead of – were they trying to do it by hand? They have – I think they have their own program or they have their own way. They calculate it supposedly using the same criteria, but you've got to – there's a lot of data that gets to be input. As someone who is involved in this process, like you can miss someone had a B team here. Someone got a point where you didn't think they were going to get a point. There's a lot of data. It's not like – Bo has a great program, but you've got to be able to execute it with the right information, and it's it's hard to do that. I'll, I'll give him some slack there. And actually, I don't know if I was sort of described what I wanted to describe when I was talking about FlowTrack. The lawyer was very nice and very pleasant on the phone, and it's kind of interesting. Folks, if you have a problem with Let's Run, moderation, whatever it is, content, you can call us, 844-LET'S-RUN. It's impossible to call YouTube. It's impossible to call Facebook. It's impossible to call Twitter. So – while they own the rights to this, like they own the NCAA broadcast rights, it will be only behind the full-track paywall this weekend. And actually, that paywall, bad news, folks, has gone to the D2 and D3 rigs this year as well. 
So they own the rights, but they don't. If a fan takes a video, what they need to do is they have to pay someone at the stadium, which I mean at the cross country courts, which is hard, and say, "Hey, you're not allowed to record this. We're the only ones allowed to record it." It's an NCAA rights thing. It's not a copyright thing. But but YouTube doesn't have any way to enforce that. They only enforce copyright claims. So they filed like a false copyright claim against us because they thought that that video was infringing upon their broadcast rights, even though they didn't really broadcast it. So it's kind of interesting. Like it's impossible to reach these big companies, except for Let'sRun.com. I have a question. I think we've discussed this before. Maybe we found out in a thread. Is there any other sport where the NCAA championship is pay-per-view for the NCAA? And I think it's a question. I mean, obviously more stuff is going streaming and maybe you have to subscribe to stuff. And if you have to have cable, say, oh, I have to have cable. But like Flowtrack isn't part of a cable package. And I think the NCAA, right? Like one, if other sports do this, fine. But I don't know because I don't care about NCAA rowing or whatever. But where's the value add from Flowtrack? The NCAA could easily send out their own production crew and put it behind a thing. And I think it's interesting, like, whether why does the NCAA just produce it and have their own pay-per-view thing? Because a lot of people just want to watch this one-off meet. They don't want to subscribe to something for a month or a year. And you could, there's a whole thing about the bigger ecosystem. But, like, w- what's the value out of it being on Flowtrack when it's just a one-off race? And I think, like, DC United, did you guys know this? They went behind Flowtrack's paywall this year, and they dropped the contract in the middle of the year. They were getting millions of dollars of Flowtrack. But I can only assume they decided, like, wait, they just took something that used to be out there. They're not helping expand expand it. It's just behind a paywall, and some of the money's going to this company. I'm sure the flow track would say, oh, yeah, we, we're promoting the sport. We're making it more prominent. But it seems like if it's a one-off race, it could be just behind the NCAA's own paywall. You know, we pay 10 bucks to watch it or 20 bucks, whatever the price is. But to have to subscribe to this one-off thing, it just doesn't make sense, especially if the NCAA treats one sport separately than all the other sports. Every year, John, I claim I'm going to get the uh, the radio right so we could do our internet stream. Would you be my broadcast partner, John? Instead of typing, we could just do a play Kind of like just running around the course and watching the race. You, we, that would require we'd have to get in a broadcast booth. and No, maybe we could just do it on our phones from the – from the side. There's a huge market for, you know, NCA cross country. <laughs> yeah, that's the most coveted contract that there is in sports media rights. All right. Maybe I should go to Kickstarter and we can go I, I can bid for the for the television rights. If if I don't win, at least I jack up the rights. Does John even remember the cross country used to be on like live television? I were senior year of high school, I invited my friends on the high school cross country team over to watch Galen Rupp versus Chalanga on Versus an old team which no longer exists we watched it It was a monday afternoon i dvr'd it so we went there after practice and introduced them i'm like hey this is galen rupp this is sam chalanga this is the matchup to watch they kind of watched it It was we all got together and watched it on tv um so that was pretty cool there it's like it's on tv you're expanding the audience the reach of it if it's on a pay-per-view it feels like it'd be anywhere so i think the nca should go to a more one-off model or have their own subscription service because it's already hard enough for casual fans to, who want to watch this. Are they going to sign up to watch one race? Probably not. All right. Two, two more things I want to say before we go. We'll talk to Patriots Cowboys just in a second. First thing, I just found this hilarious Twitter thread. Clayson Shumway, he's a runner for BYU. He still runs there right now. He's a good Twitter follow. And he just, you know, I think jokingly, but he was just lobbing out like these insults to other cross-country teams which i found hilarious you know the week of ncaa's here are a few of them i'd rather get dfl at nationals than win and live in ames iowa <laughs> nike make a nike sorry nike better make a commercial about harvard and the four percents because that's the only way you got to nationals 
Uh, I can't say anything about bad about Colorado because the last time I taught trash on Twitter, those voodoo artists made me pass out and break my hand. There must be a backstory there. I'm constantly blown away by Tulsa's ability to recruit good foreigners. Do none of you take the three minutes to check Google and realize that there are 48 states preferable to Oklahoma? Obviously, the only phenomenon that is more incredible is Arkansas's ability to get good Americans. And that's, you know, those are a few of them. I thought they were pretty funny. This is a guy, we don't know if he's actually going to be running. He hasn't raced all in year because he's been injured. Ed Eystone wouldn't really say if he's running. I kind of suspect that he's not. But I found this very bold, especially coming from a guy from Utah with the first name Clayson, who's essentially a walking stereotype. So I, I found it very amusing. Yeah, John, are there any replies? I mean, I, there's a few jokes I think I could make about uh, the age of the BYU team, but I see there's a whole thread on Connor Mance that has been removed from what's run because it spiraled into, I think, some discussion of the Mormon religion or something. I'm not sure. It's like eight pages long. I see it's deleted now. I actually had to delete that last night. The same idiot that had posted 20 times on Paul Radcliffe had probably posted under 50 different handles on Connor Mance. So he hates Paul Radcliffe and he must hate Mormons. That was very weird. I didn't really have time to look into it. Like, literally – there was so, I've never seen one person post that much on one topic. It's crazy that thread. I would see it every day. It's on the on the message board. I'm like, who the hell keeps bumping this months old thread about Connor Mance? Like, who cares? But apparently, it's just one person. So, sorry, real quick. What y'all are talking about the comebacks about the BYA age? A poster on the message board has done a kind of. What about this reply, guys? This is kind of personal. I'd rather win nationals than believe a farmer in upstate New York was visited by an angel with a set of golden plates no one else could see. I mean, you can make fun of any religion, right? I feel like that one's at least sort of tastefully done. I don't know if tasteful is the right word there, but I mean, religion's a very personal thing, but I think I've seen a, a lot worse than that one. You could argue maybe we should remove it, or you could say, hey, it's a joke, right? Like, so the guy's trying to joke, make humor this guy made humor at other people about living in Iowa. Is this a fair joke? Yeah, I, th- I think all of this seems to be done in good fun. And, uh, you know, hopefully no one takes it too far, but I think it's pretty funny. Yeah, once again, we want to do a better job moderating and removing the worst post. But if you expect a, um offensive free place, don't come to Let's Run. I think people need to, you need to be exposed to stuff you don't like from time to time. I highly recommend this book, Coddling of the American Mind. It talks about some of these issues and also like how social media has been very bad for youth in general. There's a whole concept of like Instagram itself, which people think is, Oh, positive, all these nice photos. It's been like, like suicide rates are up for especially young girls. So there's just this whole topic of things that some people think is pretty neutral and positive actually may be terrible, but I hope all in all the, this is some discussion I have with Leo Connor, the net, positive. I think let's run.com hopefully is positive for the running community. And this is a society as a whole, you know, like are there negative things on there? Of course, if I, you know, designing a perfect community is much easier said than done, especially once you start talking about some of the specifics of moderating. Here's my solution to solve the teenage angst problems of the world, ban Facebook, Twitter, all social media until set an age limit of 21 and also get rid of the drinking age. You'll get rid of binge drinking, greatly reduce it and reduce suicide. Robert's plan to save the world. Wow. All right. Let's talk. The people have been waiting for it. All podcast. It is, it's not even the marquee showdown of the NFL weekend because Packers Cowboys is, sorry, Packers 49ers is a great Sunday night matchup, but the Dallas Cowboys coming into Foxborough to play the New England Patriots, the defending champion, the six time Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots. How terrified are you guys? First of all, John, before we get there, are you going to the game? 
No, I'm not going to the game. Oh, disappointing. You still have a job though, because you're going, you know, and little tickets hadn't come our way. We'd be a little upset. We've heard rumors about a box sometimes that you might get access to. But John, we, we haven't brought this topic up earlier today because we want to talk about how you treat employees or people under your care. And just this could be a very tough week for you. The Cowboys destroy the Patriots this weekend. Tom Brady already seems like he's not himself. He's talking about how the offense isn't good. He seems complaining. But what if Dak comes in, shows he's the future, and just destroys you? Are you going to be okay? Because then, oh, man. I saw, I, saw, I saw my first thing ever. It said Cowboys Super Bowl this year. I saw an article. Like, it came up in my feed that they can make the Super Bowl. I'm, I'm a little worried about the playoffs first, obviously. We're about 52% to make it. But, John, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. This is, this is a great annual tradition. If we get blown out at home by the Cowboys – an annual tradition here is for the Patriots to lose a game in the regular season. Everyone writes them off. They say they're done. They can't do anything. Oh my God. The Brady Belichick era is over. This is just, it's like Thanksgiving for us. It comes around every year. Then we come, we go, we'll see you in the AFC championship game. We may or may not make the Super Bowl, but yeah, no, I, I, I want them to win obviously. And we're favored by what? Six and a half points. And our defense is probably unlike any... I don't think you guys have faced a defense like this this season. Now, granted, we've only faced one great passing offense. Uh, well, Baltimore, not, I don't know. They, they didn't really rip us to shred. They were great offense, period. You know, they rely more on the ground. But yeah, Dallas, it's going to be a tough test, but Dak's going to be tested too by the greatest defensive mind, you know, of all time, I would say. I mean, six and a half point favorite, you're a big favorite. But J- Robert, did you already see that? He already... He's now... Ch- sort of lowering expectations he opened up the, to the possibility of a blowout by the cowboys what nobody's expecting a blowout by the cowboys you just said you're expecting it you said what's gonna happen i didn't say i was expecting it i just seen the reaction and like on our monday morning conference call robert went through the went through and talked how the cowboys have the advantage in running passing receiving coaching and john almost had a heart attack <laughs> yeah. no the they do look Running the Dallas has a better running game right now. Dak is no, undoubtedly Dak is much better quarterback than Tom Brady through the first eleven weeks of the season. Repeat that. Repeat that, John. Dak is a better quarterback than Tom Brady through the first eleven weeks of the season. I like to think that we haven't seen the best of Tom Brady yet this season. But coaching Patriots obviously have a much big, a huge advantage. Uh, defense Patriots have a big advantage there. So I think it's a good game between two good teams. And if, you know, the Patriots, yeah, they don't get blown out at home very often. I mean, you know, I, I don't expect them to get blown out. But I, if I had to pick, I would pick them to win. And if they win, I'll give you shit next week and on the podcast and probably for the next four years until we play you guys again. What's the Princeton kid's name whose uncle's Jason Garrett O'Toole? Garrett, o, uh, Garrett O'Toole, right? Yeah, Garrett, if you're listening, I love your uncle. A lot of people don't. Actually, your aunt, I, I met her once. Very nice woman. The Cowboys need to like get an analytical guy for just the game time stuff, like whether they go for it and fourth down. That's the only problem with Garrett's coaching at this point. Well, you could argue not the only thing, but like the offense is great, but just some of the the, the analytical decisions are terrible. I don't know. I need a ro- I need a Rojo hot take. Rojo c- calling paging Rojo. Uh, I've been we've sadly quite. It's well than trying to kiss ass for. An analytics job with the Cowboys for free tickets to this game. That was really weird. <laughs> so, yes, yes to either one. My hot take is 
I'm not scared. I, I, I like the Patriots. I would say they're my co-third favorite team. Cowboys, Redskins, Patriots. and um, That is a lie. I went to the Patriots-Ravens game with you. You were openly cheering for the Ravens, dancing with every touchdown. There was no... No argument can be made. You said you like Tom Brady and you think he's the GOAT and that you like the Patriots. That was a lie. Robert is he does not like the Patriots. Both favorite team, because normally my other teams don't make the playoffs, so I like to have several hats in the ring. But the teams that beat us are the teams that can just outscore us. Our defense is never good. Every year it's not good. Our offense is pretty good. So it should be interesting. Um, I don't understand. You know, I read this week that Bill Belichick tried to get a job with the Cowboys, so hopefully he changes his mind up. And Weldon loves Garrett, but if they're going to get rid of him since his, this is his last year of his contract, I'd be happy for Mr. Belichick to coach my team. Oh, really? You'd like the greatest football coach of all time to coach the, your team? That's something you'd like? Correct. Yeah. All right. That's that's a, that's really by – that is like the opposite of a hot take, Robert. That's like – What if we flip coaches? The Clapper, that's his nickname. The Clapper goes to – New England and we get, get, we get Belichick. Sometimes you need just, you need to fix it up. I mean, like it's unbelievable. Well, you guys do. We've won six Super Bowls and have had an unstoppable winning for two decades. I mean, we don't need to change anything. It's amazing. I saw this, you know, Jerry Jones, the guy who fired Tom Landry and fired Jimmy Johnson the year he won a Super Bowl has kept Jason Garrett for 10 years. That's a side of the, that's actually insane. I can't believe Garrett has lasted that long. And the Dallas fan base, they want Super Bowls. They want like NFC Championship games. It's amazing. But every year, like the team, they don't quit on Garrett. And somehow, like every year, there's like something we catch on to. We're like, yeah, one more year, man. Let's let's do it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's a bad coach. I just am shocked with Jerry Jones. He used to have a short temper, and you know, it's amazing that he's actually stood by him for so long. Yeah, but the standard usually isn't, is, are they a bad coach? It's like, is there some shiny object out there? Or is of there course, else? of course. So we shake it up for the fan base, for ticket sales, you know, or like, you know, what are the wins above replacement? I'm not convinced that Garrett's wins above replacement, whoever you bring in to replace him. But a lot of times, you know, the new coach you bring in is no better than the one you currently have. All right. Well, that's your, uh, that's your NFL preview. And We'll have another live podcast. That's the plan. Stay tuned for exact time, but it'll be hopefully from live from Terre Haute on Saturday morning to get you guys ready for the NCAA Cross Country Championships. We'll have a lot of interviews and previews and stuff coming on the website all week about that. So get excited and make sure you enter the prediction contest sponsored by Running Warehouse. You can win shoes, you can win gift certificates, and you can win bragging rights. Remember, I won this contest in 2016. Uh, I need to embarrass these johnson brothers again i think i lost the world championship contest somehow uh that can't stand so i'll I'll go and kick their ass in cross country and restore order did you guys know that if you win the contest one of the prizes you get is the sketchers go run ride eight hyper did you guys know that edward cheserick has an official shoe i did not this is not just a sponsored plug i had no idea it shows like you got to advertise people like i think the average person didn't know that i thought it was kind of cool obviously i knew sketcher sponsored King Chess, but I don't know. I just thought that was kind of cool. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you from Terre Haute on Saturday morning. Go Pats.